sorry. Please remain standing as we open God's word together. My name is Amelia. I'll be sharing with you Acts 17, verses 16 to 23. Now, while Paul was waiting with, for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I don't know, I'm tempted to make you all stay standing for the sermon. <laughs> so there's an old joke that goes something like this. Uh, two young fish are swimming along, having a grand old time. Uh, when an older fish uh, swimming the opposite direction comes past them, and as he's passing these two young fish, he says, Hey, boys, how's the water? The two fish keep swimming along, uh, seemingly unaffected by this older fish's remark, until one of them turns to the other and says, What's water? Yeah, okay, that killed with my seven-year-old. You got all except for the person who laughed over there, you are all too sophisticated uh, for this level of joke, I guess. But anyway, it's a simple joke, but as simple as it is, I think it captures uh, something profoundly true about being a Christian, especially about being a Christian in a secular age, in this world we find ourselves in now. Now, we're spending um, a couple of months talking about discipleship between now and before we get into the summer, and uh, we, we've, we're, we're taking the first third of, of this time to talk about what kind of world are we in. Let's pause for a minute, look at the world around us so we can talk about how does God form us and how does he make us into disciples for this world. So we kicked it off two weeks ago. Last week, though, Pastor Jeff talked about how our, our calling in this world, our role in this world, is to be resident aliens. Resident aliens, he pointed out, is a, a phrase or a word that Peter uses in 1 Peter to, to basically define our calling in this world. We are temporarily full-time residents in this world, while permanently full-time citizens in the world that is to come. Now, Jeff pointed out that, uh, that this phrase means we, we live neither as tourists nor as natives. We're not permanently rooted but neither are we just passing through. And he said we need to live with one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come. I don't know about you, but that sounds insanely difficult to me. It seems like it would be much easier to just live with both feet in one world at a time. It's not our calling. It may be easier to uh, follow the currents of culture and accommodate our Christianity to the latest thought, the latest belief, and live with both feet firmly in the world. And that would be easier. 
It's also easier to kind of find our own fish tank and get out of this pool, go find a place where we can be pure and keep our community alive, and just focus on being apart from the culture. Again, that would be easier. It's not our calling. We're called to maintain a foot in both worlds, which can be difficult, even as it's difficult for us to recognize the water that we're all swimming in. So today, as we're in this first third of our discipleship series, looking at the world around us, we're just going to pause for a few minutes and say, okay, well, what are we swimming in? What kind of a world, what does it mean to be living in this secular age? Now, the bottom line of the sermon is fairly simple, uh, and it's an application of what Pastor Jeff talked about last week. Uh, To live as resident aliens in a secular age, if we actually want to do that, if we want to live with one foot in one world and one foot in the the world that is to come, if we're going to live as resident aliens in this secular age, we have got to know our culture in order to reach our culture. Now, of course, missionaries take this for granted, but it's difficult for us sometimes to remember we live in a world that's not our own as well. If we want to reach the culture, we've got to know the culture. So how do we do that? Well, thankfully, St. Paul gives us a bit of an example, a pattern or a method that we can follow as we turn to Acts 17. Uh, Paul in Acts, which is, you know, that history of the early church, uh, Paul in Acts makes a series of speeches to different groups, and looking at the differences among these speeches is is instructive. We're going to just skim, skim is the wrong word, we're going to take just a brief look at some of the differences. We can read Paul preaching to Jews, to Gentile worshipers of God, to peasant polytheists, to sophisticated pagans, to Christian elders, to a hostile Jewish mob, and to governing elites. And each of the times that Paul speaks in a different context, he presents the claims of Christ in a slightly different way. He modifies his approach and contextualizes it to address whatever culture he's addressing. He, he wants to address their sort of baseline cultural narratives. What, what do these people hope in? And show how that's only fulfilled in Christ. And for instance, when he's with Bible-believing Jewish and Gentile worshipers, he quotes the Old Testament and he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of the com- covenant promises. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, with peasant polytheists, he argues from general revelation and the greatness of creation to establish who God is. When he's talking with sophisticated philosophers, he doesn't quote the Bible at all. He quotes from their own authorities and then refers to historical events. You know, when Paul is talking about sin with the Jewish people, he says, basically, you have the law and you've tried to follow it, but that's not good enough. You think you're good, but you can never be good enough to save yourself. And when he's talking with Gentiles, he says, you've got idols and you think you're free to worship, but you're really enslaved to these idols. Find freedom in Jesus. Now, each time Paul does this, he he follows the same pattern, even though he modifies the content of his approach. He basically starts with truth about God. You think God is this, but he's actually like this. And then he starts with, uh, he follows it up with some truth about sin. You know, you think this is what sin is, but it's actually this. You're trying to save yourself, but you can't. And then he talks about Jesus. Jesus is the king, or Jesus is the ruler, or Jesus is the judge, or Jesus is the Messiah who came to accomplish your salvation for you. Now, the quick overview of Paul's speeches in Acts uh, is intended to illustrate for us that Paul was able to look at the culture he was talking to and know it well enough to reach it with the gospel. 
He took the time to get to know the culture well enough to reach the culture with the gospel. And what he did to do that is told to us explicitly in Acts 17. So if you haven't turned there yet, Acts 17, verse 23 is where we'll spend the majority of our time. It's on page 1101 if you want to follow along in that black Bible that's uh, underneath the seat in front of you. There's one little phrase in Acts 17, 23 that I want us to look at, but before we get there, we've got to put it in context. Uh, Paul is in Athens, in Greece. Uh, he's waiting there for a couple of his co-workers to catch up with him. He had been run out of Berea, the city he was in before, and had to flee, so he left Timothy and Silas behind and said, you guys set up the church, I've got to get out of here. And he goes to Acts and he waits, and while he's waiting... He doesn't take a vacation. Uh, he's wandering around the city, and what he sees moves him to action. Verse 17 tells us, uh, 16 and 17, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, Athens was a center of trade, of course, being right on the sea. Uh, and because it was a center of trade, it also became a center for the exchange of ideas. It was a very pluralistic society, one in which uh, many different religions and ethnic groups all had to coexist within the same physical space with one another. So it was a city known for its free exchange of ideas and thought, a place where anyone with a perspective could show up and share that perspective and, and gain a hearing. Well, there was enough of a, of a Jewish community there that there was a synagogue. So according to Paul's regular practice, he went into synagogue, he argued from the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants, come to Christ. But he didn't just limit himself to what maybe would have been the easier already religious converts. Uh, he went out into the marketplace. And the marketplace is not just where you buy food, it's also where government officials would give speeches and conduct business. It's where the, the military and the police force would come to get their orders for the day. It's where artisans and craftspeople would set up uh, their workshops so that they could sell things right there. And it's where philosophers and teachers would set up a stall and begin open air teaching and lecturing. So Paul goes into the marketplace. And he made enough of an impact in this exchange of ideas that the Epicureans and the Stoics, who were arch rivals with one another, uh, both collectively invited him to come and address the Areopagus, or the Areopagite, or whatever it's called. Uh, verse 19, they took and brought him to the Areopagus. Now that is referring to a hill. It's called the Hill of Ares is what it means. Uh, we sometimes call it Mars Hill because Ares is the Greek god of war and Mars is the Roman god of war. So that's where the name Mars Hill comes from. But it's, it's not so much the location that's the point here. It's the fact that there's a council that meets there. And that council is given responsibility for overseeing education in the city. Part of what that meant is that they had to give the thumbs up to uh, any visiting lecturer or any visiting teacher who wanted to set up a stall and begin teaching. So Paul's invited. It's like, what you're saying is interesting. Let's go get you certified, essentially. And so they invite him to come and address the Areopagite, the council at Mars Hill. Now let's take a look at the opening lines from Paul's address to the council, verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
Now, we could spend a lot of time just digging into all the stuff that's in those two verses. There's a ton there. But I want to limit our thinking this morning to just one short phrase in verse 23, where Paul says that he observed the objects of worship. As I was going through the city and observed the objects of worship, and then he moves into explaining who Jesus is. Other translations put a little more punch into the idea of observed. They translate it, looked closely or observed carefully. It has the idea of continual and careful study of wanting to really understand something. It's not... It's not like American tourists today taking selfies with whatever idols we come across. Like he was, he was interested, what does this mean? What is this teaching about what the culture believes, what it worships, what it celebrates, who its heroes are, and all of that? Uh, the text tells us that Paul, walking through the city, saw all these idols and was, was bothered by it. So he took the time to understand the religious climate, the religious temperament of the city, so that then when he went in to present the gospel in a way that made sense, he could refer to their own cultural movements and their cultural loves and desires. See, Paul is embodying the idea we're looking at this morning, that if we're going to live as resident aliens in our culture, if he was going to live as a resident alien, at least for a time in a city that was not his own, you've got to know the culture to reach the culture. You've got to know the culture if you want to reach the culture. And knowing our culture means knowing what we worship. What do we worship? What do we love? What do we chase after? Who are our heroes? What are the stories that shape up? Who are the, shape us? Who are the villains? And what does it mean to be a villain in this world? What's the purpose of human life? What is it aiming at? What is it running towards? What do we love? If we're going to be what we're called to be, resident aliens in a secular culture. we got to learn how to do what Paul did, know the culture well enough to reach the culture. And it's getting a little bit harder than it used to be. Jamie Smith is a philosopher and professor up at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, and he makes a provocative claim in a recent book called How Not to Be Secular. He says, we often come to our neighbors, quote, with what we thought were all the answers to the unanswered questions that these secular people had. But it doesn't take long for us to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered, they were unasked. Our secular neighbors aren't looking for answers for some bit of information that's missing from their mental maps. To the contrary, they have completely different maps. We thought we were moving into a world just like ours, only minus God. It turns out we've moved into a completely different world. Now, how exactly we got to this brave new world and where we are right now is a different story, and it's one that would take many, many books, and there are many, many books, about how we got here. You know, you can look them up and read them, but I don't have time to tell the whole story or even part of the story, so that's not my goal. This morning, we're just going to take a few minutes to do what Paul did, carefully observe the water we're swimming in, take a look around, and get a sense of the world that God has called us to today. So to do that, we're going to depart from the text for a few moments. Buckle up. We're going to pretend to be anthropologists for a little bit, sociologists, uh, cultural ethnographers, if you will, as we try to map the heart of a secular age. And I want to begin by asking ourselves what we mean when we say secular. 
know I've used the word a number of times already this morning, and we've used it a lot around here over the last year or two as we've clarified our calling to equip followers of Christ to be informed and winsome ambassadors in a secular world or in a secular age. And you all know me well enough by now to know that I love definitions. Um, I just love knowing that we're all talking about what I think we're talking about, so I tend to define things. Secular, what does it mean? The definition has changed. 500 years ago, more than 500 years ago, secular meant the opposite of sacred. So you had secular objects, like a pitchfork, and sacred objects, like a Bible. Uh, You had secular professions, like farmer, and sacred professions, like a priest or a monk. Uh, secular meant temporal, mundane, uh, this-world-oriented. Sacred meant transcendent, eternal, immaterial. And these two ideas were not seen as being in conflict so much as being interwoven together. They were, um, they were I'm not sure what the word is for it, but they're basically planes that overlapped one another. And in the the sacred, the transcendent plane could break down into the mundane and the earthly on a regular basis, and and it did. There were places, people, things that imbued the sacred. As an illustration of this, the author Andrew Root writes about driving into St. Paul and seeing the great St. Paul Cathedral. He says when we're driving in, we don't say to our kids, look kids, see that building? That is a place where the eternal plane of existence breaks into our temporal reality. Go in there and you step out of this world into God's world. Evil can't reach you there when you're in there because the very essence of that place is different from the apartment buildings below it or from here in our car. And we kind of chuckle when we hear that, but we should remember that's the way the majority of human history understood the sacred and the secular. Just, just because we think differently now doesn't necessarily mean we're right. It's just, it's different. Root goes on to say, when we drive into the city and see the building, we say, look, kids, look at that beautiful building. Lots of famous people have gotten married there. In other words, for us, sacred means just as much meaning as I'm willing to give it. Things are not sacred. People are not sacred. Um, I'm the one who decides what is sacred. So the church is no longer uh, the house of God where, where the, the transcendent breaks into the earthly. It's the shelter for his church where his people gather. We're all a little bit secular now. Now, the definition has changed. We think about sacred and secular a little bit differently now, thanks to everybody's favorite boogeyman, the Enlightenment. Around the 18th century or so, we all started thinking a little bit differently. That's good. But secular came to mean a non-religious space or an a-religious space. And so we started to conceive less of sacred and secular as planes that overlapped one another and and through which the transcendent could break into the earthly, and we start to see them as territories that are at war with one another, competing for uh, allegiance within people, within governments, within places. And so sacred and secular came to mean uh, sort of a divide between things that are religious and things that aren't which is a false divide because everything's religious, but this isn't the sermon to get into that. But uh, this is what gave rise to ideas like this, the secular public square, the secular school system. We could conceive of a world in which governments, for instance, weren't uh, built upon any one particular faith tradition. Now, we did that in part because the faith traditions kept shooting at each other, 
and that wasn't good overall for the peasants. And so we kind of stopped and started making universal rationality our, our one thing that we could all agree on. So religion was sort of pushed out of the public square, and it, it needs to be completely secular. Now, of course, the way we're using secular isn't either of those definitions. It's a development of both of them. As the world was no longer sort of infused with the transcendent and the transcendent pulled out into our own perception and what we were willing to say was transcendent, and as we, with travel, internet, all those great connection technologies, have become aware of a myriad of more options for approaching transcendence, the available ways of being religious has exploded. That's what we mean by secular. Uh, when we say we live in a secular world or a secular age or a secular culture, we mean that we live in a world in which the options for belief are almost without number. Which means because everything has kind of got an equal playing field, every belief is contested. Every belief can be argued for and against. Nothing is taking, taken to be just the ground floor belief that is true for all people at all times. Ultimate beliefs are no longer taken for granted in other, world, in other words. So we live in a world in which it's plausible to convert to or deconvert from any particular religion we choose. Now, I know some of what I'm saying seems kind of obvious. You're like, yeah, but it's obvious in the sense of water is obvious to a fish. Um, this is not the way the world has always been. It used to be five, six, seven hundred years ago, if you were a heretic, that was not an individual choice. That put the community at danger from the transcendent breaking in and punishing the whole group. You didn't get to just choose. Now, there were a few elites who could, but by and large, the majority of the population just believed the same things by default. And we do too, we just have different default assumptions about what, is, what to believe and even what is believable. And in this world we live in today, our, our default assumptions, kind of the background beliefs that shape our worldviews, make belief in God uh, much less plausible than it used to be. And for those of us even gathered here today who say, I, I do believe in God and I do believe in the transcendent and I do believe that Christ broke from the transcendent into the mundane, we can still conceive of ourselves within a world in which we believe differently. That's what it means to be secular. Everything is up for debate. And in this secular world, in the secular world, in this world where everything is up to debate, or most things are up for debate, Christianity is kind of an exception, and if you want to know why, ask me why, I don't have time. Uh, but in a world where, where just about every belief is up for debate, we humans have now learned literally a new way to live. In the last couple hundred years, we have developed a completely new way to think of and live within this world. It's a new way to be human. In essence, we now live with our faces to the ground. Because it's almost impossible for the vast majority of our culture, uh, implausible at best, to believe in a transcendent, everything of significance has to be found and can only be found within the world. There's no greater... There's no human flourishing that, that kind of aims at some greater good that's out beyond death. Uh, there's no calling that comes from a greater purpose other than what we're willing to give it. So all of the significance and all of the meaning and all of the purpose and identity and hope and justice that we seek to find has to be found now because there's no guarantee it'll be found tomorrow and it definitely won't be found after death because there's nothing after death. 
To believe in a transcendent world requires a leap of faith, which is basically seen as untenable. So if you're going to make any meaning, you've got to make it now. But what's interesting is that in part because of our Christian past and in part because God is still moving in people, we are as a culture and as individuals haunted by transcendence. We're haunted by this back-of-the-mind sense that there is something more out there. There's, there's something that if we could just connect with it somehow, it, it would make our lives feel full or significant or have meaning. A few years back, I was at a barbecue with a called my aunts and uncles, and all the cousins were running around playing in the backyard. And I was standing with one of my uncles. We were chatting about the car that he was building. And somewhere in the middle of the conversation, he just paused. And he's like, you know, I know there's nothing more to life or nothing after death and all that. But when I look at my daughter run around, I just can't help but think there's got to be something more. What do you think that is? I was like, well, actually, I I think I might know. (laughs) Now, I wish I'd done a better job of telling a better story then, but I didn't. But uh, he really exemplifies for me this sense of being haunted by transcendence, by a feeling that there must be something. And because we all, by and large, have this feeling there must be something to connect with, we're all basically on a spiritual quest. We're on a quest to find whatever that thing is and find it in such a way that um, it fulfills our unique desires and needs. The only thing we're not allowed to do on our spiritual quest is go to some sort of received tradition and accept it because someone told us to. we got to find it for ourselves. Now, thats I don't know if that's good or bad, but I do know that's the way the world is. And so it's something we got to reckon with as we're working in 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 a secular world. So spirituality endures, even if it's cut off from traditional organized religion. Uh, we, as people, tend to reorganize our spirituality. We've recentered it in ourselves, uh, finding something unique that speaks to us. Um, that may mean we construct a philosophy of awe-ism, as a secular writer named Phil Zuckerman does. Uh, or, or we, as a people, become fascinated by the self-expressive, find-yourself quest stories that are out there in the broader culture, like eat, pray, love, as we're on a quest to find our own authentic spirituality. We have to find our own route to wholeness and spiritual depth. But it gets more complicated. The myriad of options out there and the sense that I don't know if I'm right because I haven't been to India and I haven't been to Bali and I haven't been to this and I haven't explored that and I haven't explored this option creates within us both a paralysis and kind of a malaise of just an inability to commit or make any uh, commitment to anything. It's the same, it's a similar kind of paralysis as when I'm sent to the store to buy flour and I get there and there are 14 different kinds of flour and I would like to just buy the one that feels right to me, but odds are one in 14, you know, that I'm going to, I'm going to buy the right one. So I'm going to get home and the bread won't rise, you know, Uh, it's that sense of paralysis that comes from having too many options. What do I do if everything is contested and everything's contestable and I don't know what to believe because everybody's telling me a different story? Now, finding ourselves in that malaise, by and large, we tend to then kind of track towards the same the stories of the, that are being lived out in the communities we're part of. So if you're a little bit on the older spectrum, um, our story tends to be get a good job, uh, get married, 
have kids, find meaning and purpose in raising your children, in uh, creating and appreciating beauty, in leaving a little something behind for your kids, in trying not to think too, too deep or too hard about how it's all going to disappear in the heat death of the universe. That's the good life. If you're a little on the younger end of the spectrum, the good life tends to be identify the feelings today that I think are my authentic self and figure out how to express that, go to the communities I'm part of and never out loud, but, but somewhat uh, tacitly sort of ask them, hey, do you support these, this self-expression? If they say yes, great, and if they say no, then you trade that community for one that will and you leave that family or that marriage or that group to go find a, a new marriage or a new family that will help you express your authentic self or at least that version of your authentic self as long as it lasts. If the Apostle Paul were to walk around our world and observe carefully the things we worship and to listen to our stories and to watch the rituals we undergo on a regular basis, he would see, I think, a world that is on a quest to find transcendence, to connect with some fullness that's out there. But he would see a people that's on this quest, but worshiping reason and skepticism, uh, intellectualism, freedom, and self-determination. He would see a people that is openly spiritual, but virulently non-religious. And a world of people who I think are looking around for a larger story that makes sense of the world they find themselves in, but they can't find a story within this world. So what would Paul say to the men of Indianapolis, to the women of Indianapolis? What would he say to us and to our neighbors, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, the people we worship with? I think he might say something like, as one author has put it, you know, all these quests that you're on and all these things you're driving at and, and these ways you think the next thing is going to fulfill you know, it, it sure looks like you feel that there is a purpose to life, that there's a goal, that there's some, some end that you're shooting for. But, you know, a, a this world is all there is perspective says there isn't. There is no goal. There's no end. There's no purpose. But don't you feel like there is? Don't you ever get a sense of or have those moments of foreboding or, or on the cusp elation where you just can't shake the sense that there must be something more? And it always seems to happen around birth, rites of passage, the death of loved ones. And then I think Paul would tell a story. I think Paul would tell the story of a God who, in love, created the world and everything that's in it, a God whose heart was broken by the rejection of his love from his creation. He'd tell the story of a people who were created to flourish in obedience to this God, how obedience to him actually brought them freedom, but they thought they could find more freedom on their own, so they rebelled. And he'd tell the story of a God who, even in the midst of that rebellion, continually and lovingly reached out to his creation, talked to them, sent messengers to them, chased after them like a father chases after a rebellious son. He'd talk about how these people had gone out looking for freedom and only found themselves enslaved to their own desires and unable to break the cycle of addiction that keeps them going back to the same things over and over and over again 
thinking, if I get a little bit more this time, maybe, maybe it'll finally feel right. I think you talk about a God whose heart was broken by the self-destruction of his people, broken so much that God self-destructed himself on behalf of his people. You talk about a God who in Jesus chose exile and execution so that we would not be exiled and executed so that his people could find the freedom that God had designed for them in a relationship with him. He talked about a God who entered into this world, who put himself in our bondage, took the shackles ourselves, and then through his resurrection broke them forever so we would never need to worry about purpose or meaning or life or freedom being taken away from us because we'll always have it in God. I think Paul would tell a story about a God who, in all of these moments of haunting, would say, don't you hear the voice of God saying, yes, there is something more. You were not meant to find yourself within yourself. You were meant to find yourself in me. That's what I created you for. And then I think Paul would pause and you say, you know, I, I realize that is really hard to believe. But doesn't that story make way more sense of the life you're living than the stories you keep telling yourself? You keep telling yourself that you're just a complex of chemicals without souls, that love itself is a chemical reaction that's designed to propagate our genes, uh, that when loved ones die, they cease to exist, and there's no right or wrong outside of what our minds say is right or wrong or what we feel like that day. It's like, but that violates the deepest intuitions of your heart in terms of people and love and justice and morality. I know you think the universe is just a cold, dark place and science is a way to figure out how the clock works, at least before it runs down. But your view of the world contradicts everything your heart tells you about the life you're living. And Paul would say that freedom you're looking for, you can find it. You can find that life. You can find freedom through slavery to Christ. I know it seems counterintuitive, but you will find freedom only when you submit yourself to him because right now you're just a slave to yourself and you are not a good slave master. He'd say, turn away from this life you've tried to make for yourself that's leaving you empty and come find Jesus. I think Paul would tell a story like that. And yeah, he'll be mocked, just like he was in Athens. But some people will want to hear a little bit more and some will even believe that's our calling. Our calling as resident aliens in a secular world is to know our culture well enough to reach our culture with a gospel that appeals to the deepest heart longings of that culture. Now, as a, as a person of faith um, committed to reaching this world and reaching especially the next generation with the claims of Jesus, I am afraid that most of the time we get to know the world in order to judge the world. I think we get to know the world or only get to know that to the extent that we can point out <clears throat> where it's wrong and where it needs to fix itself so that God will love it more. I don't think that's what Paul is doing in Acts 17. There's very little judgment or condemnation <clears throat> in this speech he gives. He starts with what they love and builds on it from there to present Jesus. You know, Paul didn't come to Athens and immediately judge them for not being Jerusalem. He didn't get up and say, men of Athens, I can see in every way that you do not have the law of Moses, which you should have had, though I don't know how you would have had it, but you should be obeying it. It's pointless. That's not the world that he found himself in. 
But I'm afraid sometimes, this is just my opinion, so feel free to disagree with me, but I am afraid sometimes we evangelicals are more interested in judging, well, we're more interested in bringing America back to some point in its past than we are in calling Americans to Jesus today and tomorrow. We look around the world and we decry the biblical illiteracy we see, the moral bankruptcy, the lack of interest in Christianity, and we pass judgment on the world. And I think it's time to close our eyes, count to 10, open our eyes, and pretend we're in a whole new world. Because we are. And if we want to reach the culture, we've got to know the culture. We live in a secular world now. That's not changing. It's not going back. Even if it did go back, we'd still remember a time when we were, so it's not changing. It's time to stop arguing with the world and time to start telling a better story. Tell the story of the God who entered into the world to save us from it. Father, you have entered this world. The the transcendent has broken into the mundane. Uh, We know where it has and when it has because we have seen the cross of Christ. We haven't seen it with our eyes, but our faith in you, our belief in you is not built on the arguments and the reasons people give us. Our faith in you is built on our experience of you. We know you like we know a friend or a spouse or another person. For all the difficulty, for all the difficulty Christianity has in explaining everything about our life experience, and there are things that are so difficult to answer, for all that difficulty, Lord, we know it answers so many more questions. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people of faith, a people at faith who live in this secular world with the glory and the appeal and the offense of the gospel on full display. I pray this in Jesus' name.